0: to choose between a wife that could cook or a wife that could do sound. So I, I chose the one that could do that could cook. <laughs> okay, let's begin. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we commit this time to you in trusting that you are going to use it to edify and equip us, to encourage us. We pray that our time here would be spent well and wisely and that you would be present to be our teacher that You teach us through Your Word and help our discussion to be that which pleases You and answers many of our questions. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, last week we went through the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and I know that by going through that in such a quick fashion as I did that I may have raised more questions than I answered. So I asked you at the end of last week, be thinking on these things, and if you have questions about them or something comes up, if you read through those chapters or whatever, if you have any questions, we'll handle it today. During a question and answer time. So that's what we're going to do to begin with. We had a, I have a couple other questions that are sort of backed up here that we can deal with. If there's nothing from the book of Acts, so we can get started on a different Q&A, but I wanted to give an opportunity at the beginning at least to answer any questions that you may have had after last week's class. So, were there any... Bonnie? No, other Bonnie. Yeah, there's two, two Bonnies. <laughs> okay. Okay, good question. Bonnie said she grew up in a Lutheran church and they of course teach that a, the Holy Spirit enters a baby at baptism as an infant and then later confirmed in that faith. Um, that's kind of a carryover of, an, of a covenant theology or an, a, a theology that says children are born into covenant families. And so we affirm that by baptizing them in expectation that someday they will indeed get saved and God will uh, redeem them. So the question is, Let's do, a two, let's do a two-pronged question here. First of all, is that biblical? And then second, how confused can you be about the work of the Holy Spirit and still be saved? And that's a good question. I'm sure I have exactly the answer that you're looking for on that, but let's begin with, is that a biblical notion that the Spirit of God comes into a baby when a baby is baptized? And the answer to that is no. There's no, nothing in Scripture that suggests that that's, that's true. The presence of the Spirit of God indwelling an individual is a sign that they are saved. So if a baby is saved as a result of baptism, that's baptismal regeneration. That's the idea that baptism uh, affects a salvation. And there's nothing in Scripture that suggests, first of all, the baby should be baptized. The New Testament is silent about that. Every instance in the New Testament of baptism is for those who heard the Word of God and believed the Word of God and trusted in Christ for salvation, and then they were baptized as a result of that. I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church because my grandparents on my dad's side were staunch Catholics and they thought they needed to get me baptized before I died because I was born with um, a a double hernia that needed to be operated on. So the idea was, since I was clinging on to life in the early weeks of my life, that they needed to baptize me before I died so that I would be saved. But in the New Testament, there's no evidence that they ever baptized infants. It's always inferred or it's assumed or it's built on the case of the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament practice of circumcising infants. So that's not a biblical practice, nor is there anything in the New Testament that says infants are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They are born in iniquity. They're sinners and rebels from the moment of conception. And when they they are indwelt by the Spirit of God, only after they reach a point where they can understand what's going on, understand the Gospel, trust in Jesus Christ, then they're indwelt by the Spirit of God. So, the second part of the question that she asked is, how confused can you be about the work and ministry or the person of the Holy Spirit and still be saved? And to that I would say you, you we need to distinguish between the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in order to answer that question. Because if you are confused about the person of the Holy Spirit, I would say you can't be saved. In other words, if you think that the Holy Spirit is the angel Gabriel or a power or a force or God's energy or some, some new age avatar or something like that, that is a distortion of the person of God himself. That is to suggest that God is not a Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is not God, that the Holy Spirit is not a person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Son. So if you are confused about who the Holy Spirit is, the nature of the Holy Spirit, his person, I think that you can be confused enough to not be saved. Does that make sense? Because then you're dealing with the nature of God himself. But as a Christian, I think that a Christian can be genuinely confused about a lot of things that the Spirit of God does. A Christian could think that the Spirit of God, um, I mean, we have all of this, you have all of this, um, variety of belief regarding the work of the Holy Spirit within Christianity. Everything from charismatic influences, which suggest that everything the Holy Spirit does is miraculous and tongues. All the way down to sort of a much more muted or a much more subdued sense of who the Holy Spirit of God is and what He does. There's a lot of variety there. So I think as Christians, there can be a lot of confusion because you'd have somebody got saved, but they have no idea what what now what role does the Holy Spirit of God play in my life? And it can be ignorance. Um, I think that there is a line. Now, having said that, I don't think you can be I don't think you can be radically confused about what He does. Because I think that there is obviously a line where you can say, I believe that this is the work of the Spirit of God, and that becomes blasphemy. If I believe that the Spirit of God is to intoxicate me spiritually so that I can't talk and I just lay on the floor and drool and vomit all over myself, and I say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit, no, it's blasphemy. That's a blasphemous belief. So that is a distortion of the Spirit of God is to attribute a demonic work to the Spirit of God. People who do that, who attribute works of Satan or works of the flesh to the Spirit of God, I believe are blaspheming. God Himself. They genuinely believe it's the Holy Spirit. Even though they genuinely believe that, they're genuinely wrong. So the level of sincerity with which they believe that only would serve to make them really, really wrong. Because they really, really believe it. So then it's really, really blasphemy, so to speak. So... They may genuinely you I think you can have Christians who are genuinely saved and then they are taught all types of horrible things and they see all types of horrible things and they have no ability to discern or tell the truth about what the work of the Spirit of God is. But Paul does say nobody can call the Spirit of God accursed who is saved, and nobody can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I think it's 1 Corinthians. So if the work of the if you have somebody who is Repeatedly blaspheming the Spirit of God by saying the Spirit of God is doing this and causing this and He's doing this work and those things are the works of Satan. I think that that individual is doing something that is beyond the pale. Then you have to stop and say, hold on a second. How can you possibly blaspheme and call this the work of the Spirit of God? How can a saved person do that? I think at least it should cause us to say, to cause us to step back and question whether that is indeed that individual is indeed saved. But that's, I'm talking about an extreme now, but what Bonnie is talking about is, can Lutherans be saved and believe that the Spirit of God indwells a, a child? And I would say, I think you can be saved and be confused about the work of the Spirit of God. But I don't think you can be saved and be confused about the person of the Spirit of God. Thomas? I'm just questioning continue to the these churches they And, you know. Not about the blasphemous type of, yeah. Not if they... Ray's shaking his head, but let me qualify that statement because it can be a bit provocative. You can be saved and be in the Mormon church, but you cannot adhere to Mormon doctrine and be saved. There's a distinction there. Um, So, Thomas' point, what you're saying is the same thing I think I'm trying to say, is that you can be confused because you're being led astray, but eventually if somebody is confused and engages in this blasphemy themselves, I believe that there's something that the Spirit of God, if He genuinely indwells an individual he will recoil against that. There has to be something the Spirit of God himself says, hee, hee, that's not right. And anybody who can engage in that with a clear conscience without any apprehension whatsoever, that type of blasphemous conduct, I think evidences that the Spirit of God is not in them. Is there a way of determining whether a child, by the way they respond, is actually being called by God since they're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? Is it possible to tell from Observing a child, whether they're being drawn or called by God. Uh, I would say I think that it it can be possible. It can also be not possible. I, I think that if you had looked at me before I got saved, I don't believe you would have ever said, oh, I think he's being drawn by God. I don't think you would have said that. Yeah, ultimately... Ultimately, we cannot and we should, never be, we should never get to the point where we say we need to try and determine who the elect are or we need to try and determine who God's drawing because that's just simply not our department. And I don't think we should ever base anything that we do in ministry or preaching or presenting the gospel or evangelism based upon any of that because you can have people who look like they're drawn, look like they're hungry, look like they want to know God, and they don't because the minute you present the true God and the true gospel and the true Jesus to them, they recoil. That's the last thing they want. What they want is a God after their own making, a God after their own image. But then again, you can have somebody who, from all outward appearances, doesn't look drawn at all, and yet they're on the verge of getting saved. So I, I don't think you can ever—I don't think we should ever look at somebody's outward behavior and try and draw conclusions as to whether or not that individual is chosen or being drawn. Pardon? Baby dedication. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of baby dedications, and I think I've gone on the record with this before. It's more of a parent dedication than anything else. Um We had our first couple of ch- children dedicated, and then we stopped because we just thought, well, we've already dedicated ourselves to raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So I think it's a good thing for parents, and I think it's a good thing for people who observe that, and a good thing for a church body. But it's not something that every time a child is born, we say, okay, we need to get them in and get them dedicated because there's obviously nothing salvific or salvational that happens it's just a dedication that parents do to affirm their willingness to raise their children for the lord yeah right what how do you minister to somebody who's lost a child before that child has been old enough to trust christ and be saved that is a very difficult thing. I, my position on whether a child... Now we're getting obviously far afield from Acts, so let's just depart from Acts and we'll go on to those other things. Um, my position on whether an infant who dies or a baby that dies, whether it's an aborted baby or a miscarriage or one that dies from SIDS or any other cause before they have an opportunity to trust Christ, my belief on that is that that child goes to the presence of Christ to be with God. That's my, that's my conviction. Now, do I have a chapter and a verse, one verse or one chapter that's very clear that I can build that on? The answer is no. I actually have a theology. It's, it's every principle of Scripture that when I tie it all together, here's what I'm left with. I believe that God is good and that God will do everything that is good and right and just. I believe that the gospel is presented to intelligent creatures who can understand it. And the expectation when the gospel is presented is that that person who is able to understand the gospel, now is held accountable or responsible for whether they believe the gospel or reject the gospel. But what about a child who has never had the opportunity to to hear the gospel, and even if they had the opportunity to hear the gospel, never heard the gospel, or even having heard the gospel, was never able to understand the gospel because they simply are too small, too young, to understand those concepts and thus place their faith in Christ. Is there something that sort of comes in and answers that question or, or is there something that we can put our hope in? And I think there is. And this goes back to what Jess was talking about in Romans 4 and 5, and that is imputed righteousness. What saves us in the end is not our belief and it's not our faith and it's not anything that we do. It is the gift of God And it is what God has done. So what saves me, what allows me to stand in the presence of a holy God as a sinner is a righteousness that is given to me that's not my own. So how did I get that righteousness? I got that righteousness by faith because I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and I was saved. So that righteousness was imputed. It was accredited to my account. But what about the child who dies who's never had the opportunity to hear and is never able to place their faith in Christ? Can they have that same righteousness? I believe that they can have that same righteousness, but it goes back to who gives the righteousness and on what basis. It's God's righteousness to give, and God can impute that righteousness to whomever he wants on any basis that he wants. Now, for those who are able to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, the basis is faith. But what about those who don't hear the gospel and don't re- aren't able to respond to the gospel? And it could be a child who dies in infancy, or it could be somebody who's severely mentally handicapped and retarded and unable to understand the gospel and may live to be 30 or 40 years old, but they're so severely mentally handicapped that they can never hear the gospel or never understand it and place their faith in Christ. Is it possible that God simply credits them with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and they are imputed that same righteousness on a different basis, on the basis of the goodness of God and His character and His sovereignty and His grace and not on the basis of personal faith? I believe that is possible. Marilyn. Right. And the, and the idea there, didn't Jesus say, of such as the kingdom of heaven, referring to small children? And the idea there is that, that childlike faith. But the fact that God uses, and this is a good point, if you look through the Scriptures at the way God treats children and He views children, how He speaks of children, and Jesus, how He treated children, how He viewed children and spoke of children, there is, I believe, in the heart of God, a love for little children, that is unique and powerful. I mean, you see that even in the Old Testament prophets where God comes to bat against the children who were neglected, against the children who are being sacrificed to idols, and against the children who were abused. And for widows, there's a love that God has as a father for his creatures for the least of these that are among us. Ron. Yeah, that is, that's an argument I've heard, let's just deal with that. Um, if every aborted baby goes to heaven, then shouldn't Christians be the ones who are out leading the charge to get as many babies aborted as we can? Right? And populate heaven. That seems to be a very utilitarian, pragmatic approach. Now, I'm just taking the argument and I'm I'm taking my argument and I'm saying if I were arguing against it, here's how I would take it. I would take it to its logical conclusion. The logical conclusion is we should be in favor of abortions because we're populating heaven by having babies aborted. That, that's, that's the other side of it. Do we sin because grace abounds? Do we use any means possible to accomplish a good end? And the answer is no. So we don't go out and abort babies any more than we go out and kill everybody under two years old because that's what we call evangelism. So I mean, you don't, you can't take it to its logical conclusion. Say as utilitarians or pragmatists, then we're allowed to do anything in order to accomplish a good end because you can't, you can't do that. Um, Oh, I know you don't. I know you don't feel that way. Right. Okay, so here's Ron's Ron's point, because we have to factor in the theology of election into this as well. If God knows those whom He has chosen, and if He has chosen to save some, if a baby goes to heaven, it must be because he's elect. He had to have been elect. Because there will be no non-elect in heaven. Not going to be anybody who got into heaven and says, my, I wasn't chosen before the foundation, but somehow I squeaked in. Never going to be able to say that. So any baby who goes to heaven dies has to have been elect. So, how many options? I'm trying to think through all the options here in my mind real quick. Uh, let me just start listing them and then we'll count them as I list them. It could be that God determined to elect every baby that would die in infancy. And having determined to elect them, he then imputes to them the righteousness of Christ and they are saved with the same righteousness that we are saved by. Or it could be that God knew and did not elect any baby that would die, but that all babies who live, everybody who lives, would eventually, that God would see to it that all of his elect would live through infancy and trust the gospel. That's the second option. Or it could be that some of those babies who die are elect, and some of those babies are not elect. So that's what, three options? Everybody was counting? Okay, so it could be that God elected all babies, or it could be that God elected no babies who die. I'm speaking of babies who die. Or it could be that God determined that He would see to it, providentially, sovereignty, guarantee, that all of those that He elected would live through infancy long enough to trust the gospel and get saved. Now, any one of those three possibilities could be possible. It may be that God... It may be that, let's just say, we were able to do away with all infant mortality and no infant, no baby, through abortion or illness or death, well, obviously death, but through abortion or illness or any other thing it means would ever die again before they got to the age of 15. Let's just say we were able to guarantee to the age of 15, I'm just being generous, the age of 15, every conception. Does that mean that, how am, I going to, how am I going to phrase this? It's still possible that all of those people who normally would have died in abortion had they lived longer, that none of them would have trusted Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, let me try it again for the person shaking their head. <laughs> It's possible, okay, let's just, let's just take a hundred, a hundred abortions. If we were able to, to, and we say, what happens to those hundred babies who were aborted? Yesterday. There's over a hundred aborted yesterday. Let's just take a hundred of those. Let's take all thousand of them. Yesterday's abortion count, a thousand babies. Those thousand babies, what if we were able to keep that abortion from happening and they were to live on into adulthood? it's very possible that of those thousand who were aborted yesterday, that none of them would have ever, ever trust Christ had they lived. Does that make sense? So therefore, it is very possible that every baby who's ever been born and died in infancy, that none of them were elect, or that none of them ever would have trusted Christ, even if presented the Gospel. And if that is the case, and I'm not saying this is what I believe, but if that is the case, then it makes sense that That baby dying in infancy is an act of mercy. Why is that? Because they have not had the opportunity to fill up the cup of the wrath of Almighty God through their personal sin and violation of the law. That even if they don't go to heaven, even if they go to a place where God is not there, they have not had the opportunity to incur the same type of judgment that your unbelieving neighbor is incurring by living with his wife and beating his children, drinking alcohol and lusting. Being in pornography and all the other things that he does. So, okay. Wowza. Okay, let's take Ray first. That's right. And, and that is what, at the end of the day, that's what we come back to. When we stand in glory, we are going to say the judge of all the earth did what was right. And we will agree with it. And we will rejoice in it. Whether that means every baby goes to heaven or every baby doesn't go to heaven or half or a third or whatever that works out, however that works out, whatever it is, we will be able to say the judge of all the earth has done what is right and he is good for doing it the way that he did it. And it is for everybody's best, everybody's best that it worked out this way, whatever it is. At the end of the day, I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what happens because I have no verse to go on. My expectation is that we're going to see a lot of babies in heaven. A lot. I'm hoping it's all. I expect to see all of them in heaven. If that's not how it works out, then God's going to do what God's going to do, and it's going to be right and just. Um, But there's just no passage in Scripture where I can say, based upon this passage, every baby who dies in infancy goes to heaven. But I can look at my theology and what I believe about God, and what I believe about how we are saved, and what saves us. And I can say that with those two things in mind, my confidence is, and I would be able to tell a A mother, this is Diane's question, I would be able to tell a mother who just lost her child, I believe that you can have confidence in the character of God and the nature of His goodness and believe that your baby is with Jesus. You want me to give you something else that I think is wild? And this is just, this is my theology of heaven. If we're going to spend heaven on a new, if if heaven is going to be on a new heavens and a new earth and a physical place with cities and streets and roads and trees and bridges and rivers and waters and animals and fruit and food and parties and, people, and civilization, if all in a perfect environment, a perfect paradise, where God is dwelling with His people. And we are all in physical resurrection bodies. Is it not possible, and I think in keeping with the character of God, that God would allow that mother who lost her infant child to raise that infant child in the new heavens and the new earth and be able to experience all the joys of motherhood in a resurrected body without the curse? Isn't that possible? I... Anything is possible, but there's nothing that I have. There's nothing in the scenario that I've just presented to you that is out of keeping with the character of God or what we know about heaven. There's no theology. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that that is not a real possibility. It's... What's that? Well, I've never been to heaven, so I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> Well, are we, are we or are we not going to spend eternity in resurrection bodies? We are. So, what's that? The body is not going to change. But, well, there, will there be time in heaven though? Will there be time in heaven? Yeah, there will. How can there not be time in heaven? But just because there's no end to it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay, what is time? This is a philosophical question, but what is time? Time is simply the, how we measure the distance between two events that occur. That's all time is. On a new heavens and a new earth, where there are people and where people are doing things, time must pass. Now, time will never come to an end. Time will never be wrapped up. Time will never be exhausted. But time must pass. The only way you cannot have time passing is if nothing is happening. But how can... I may be putting God in a box, but I I would argue it's not a box that God has put Himself in. When God says, I'm going to make new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, and there are going to be people there doing things, enjoying paradise, and worshiping for all of eternity, I believe that God Himself is going to recreate a paradise here, just as He describes at the end of the book of Revelation, that that paradise is going to be a physical paradise. We're going to be in physical bodies. And we're going to spend all of eternity which is just, just means time without end, living and fellowshipping with each other and doing things and going places and exploring this new heavens and this new earth and enjoying the vistas and the beauty and going into the city and worshiping God and sitting down at a table and talking and walking by the sea and being with our kids and playing ball in the grass and everything else that goes with heaven. Yeah, and and time may not be measured the same way we measure it here. But time is simply the passing of events or the passing of time. I mean, what is eternity if it's not made up of time? It's almost meaningless. Does God experience time? Did Jesus experience time while He was here? Okay. So why why cannot God why cannot God himself I'm not that he can or can't. The question was is God bound by time? No. Is God bound by time? No, but does God dwell in time? Yes, he does. For instance, I don't think even though God looks at All of human history and he can see all of it because he's above it. It doesn't mean that to him from his perspective that none of these things are happening now that are happening with us. So does God know that I'm teaching Sunday school right now? Yeah, he does. Does he know how much time is going by and what's happening all over the world? I think he sees it and he experiences it in the sense that he dwells in time because he has a creation which is wrapped up with time but He's not bound by it, as in He can't affect the future by doing the present. He can't see what's going to happen. He can't rightly understand the past. He's not bound in time the same way that we are. A thousand years there is a day with the Lord. That has really nothing to do with whether God is bound by time. It just simply means, uh, in that context, it just simply means God doesn't see time the same way we do. We see a thousand years as being this horrible length of time, but for God it's a thousand years i mean you know it's like that for him but it doesn't mean that he he doesn't understand what a thousand years are or that he doesn't watch what's going on as time for us progresses he, he would certainly do so, so am I in, in of god right now? are you presently in the presence of god right now I No. Oh, there we go. That's, a, that's another good way of looking at it. To, was is, If Lanny were to die right now, God forbid, I'm not wishing this, but if Lanny were to die right now, would he step into heaven and all of a sudden be above time and all of us would already be there even though we're already here living? Or is Harvey Brothers waiting for Marilyn? And is Mo waiting for Lola? Or is Lola already there? She's not there. She's here. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but it's not both at the same time. You're not present in the body and present with the Lord. At the end of the book of Revelation, the saints gather around the throne during the tribulation and they say, How long, O Lord, till you avenge all of the blood of your servants shed? All of the martyrs. How long, O Lord? Now, if time doesn't mean anything in heaven, what are the saints in heaven doing around the throne of God, saying, Lord, how much longer... A measurement of time. Are you going to wait before you step in and do something? It seems to suggest to me that the saints in heaven, not only do they have some idea of what's going on here on earth, some idea of what's happening here on earth, but it also seems to suggest that they understand the passage of time and how long this has happened. It's not like they say, Oh, Lord, you're stepping in and doing it right now, and we never saw that coming. It just seemed like a heartbeat to us. No, that's the longing prayer of the saints of God before the throne. How long until you avenge yourself? How long are you going to wait, Lord? Right? seems to me that there's some idea of time, or the passage of time, even in heaven right now. So, how long, how long are the saints who have gone ahead of us, from their perspective, how long are they waiting for us to show up? Does it seem instantaneous to them? I don't think it seems instantaneous to them. I think they're waiting. And they're waiting, and when we get there, it's going to seem like less for them than it is for us, I think. But they still have some idea of the passage of time. Ron. Have you ever had a situation where you want to go water skiing, you want to play basketball, and you want to do both at the same time, but they're going on at the same time? And it causes me frustration. There shouldn't be any of that frustration in heaven. (laughs) Once we get to heaven, we can do both at the same time. I'm trying to picture Ron water skiing playing basketball at the same time. <laughs> well, see, if there's no such thing as time, the passage of time in heaven, then theoretically you're doing everything at the same time. It's all one big present now. And in, there's, there's no way that you're not doing everything. Because you're doing everything. And it's not like in heaven... It's not, then, then it would be. Then you would have to say that when I get to the New Jerusalem, I'm not going to go into Jerusalem and worship and do business, and then go to the house that I have, and then go down by the river and hang out with Drew, and then hang out with Ron. And see, I'm, a, I'm giving you a series of events, aren't I? Any series of events requires a passage of time. Otherwise, everything has happened, happening, happened, and will happen all at the same time. Everything. And then, but but then what does eternity mean? Then eternity doesn't mean anything. What is eternity? Well, eternity passed. Well, it's still coming, but it's right now. You <laughs> see, there's nothing to look forward to. if there's no time, there's nothing to look forward to. And in heaven, I think there will be something to look forward to. I think we will look forward to the day when Paul has enough time to sit down and talk with me. My here, I'm... why everybody else wait behind you. <laughs> everybody will have to wait their turn. That's right. And if you get there before I do, then you can get a start on it, and I'll get in line behind you. I think that there will be expectation, but heaven is not the absence of expectation of what to do. Heaven is the absence of unfulfilled expectations. Heaven is not the absence, it's not the lack of having something to expect or to look forward to. Heaven is the lack of having my expectations unfulfilled. When I get to heaven, I say, "I would like to do this." It's not going to be that I say, "Well, I already did that because that was just now, and I'm doing that now I'm, I won't be saying that I'm going to say, "I want to be able to do this, and I will be able to do that and I will not be disappointed or frustrated that I'm not able to do something because I will be able to do it. It is the lack of it is the lack of frustration that my expectations are unmet so well, we went far afield from Acts, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I Anna. Well, I to right. 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 So there will be... This is, this is what makes heaven heaven is eternity. That's one of the things that makes heaven heaven. I want to go play basketball and I want to go water ski. Well, for us, from our perspective here on earth, If the two things are going on at the same time, we can't do both. So it would lend to us a sense of frustration. But the absence of frustration in heaven is not going to be because I'm able to do both at the same time. It's going to be because in heaven I will be able to say, I really want to do this and not this. Right now, I'll do this a thousand years from now when Lanny's done talking to Paul. Then I'll go water skiing with Lanny or play basketball with Lanny. So heaven is not going to be... It's going to have eternity and every joy will be ultimate, every desire will be fulfilled, every expectation will be met. There's nothing that we will want to do that we will not be fulfilled in doing or be able to do. We'll never be frustrated, but not because we're unable to do two things at the same time. We're, going to be, we're not going to be frustrated because we will be able to do everything that we want. And every joy, every expectation, every desire of our heart will be met and filled to the nth degree. So since we're on this subject, let me plug a book. And it's Heaven by Randy Alcorn reading that book, the first half of the book lays out the theology of heaven from the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything about it, and he just takes the Scripture in a straightforward way. As you're reading through it, chapter after chapter, I found myself saying, yeah, I knew that, I knew that, but I didn't quite understand the implications of that. But what Randy Alcorn does is he lays out the theology of heaven and what the Bible talks about heaven and how the Bible describes heaven, and then he says, if this is how the Bible describes heaven, then here are the implications of that. Heaven will be this, and heaven must be that. And he will, he will tell you, here's where I'm using speculation, and I'm saying it's possible, as I did with the baby being raised by its mom. I'm not going to die for that. I'm not willing to go out and be crucified for that belief today. But I'm willing to say there's nothing about believing that that is inconsistent with what I know to be true about heaven or about the nature of God. So, at the end of the book, he answers a bunch of questions. And having plugged the book, let me give you this warning don't go to the end and read the what about this and how about that thing because you'll read that and then you'll say no no no. Read through the theology of it and get your mind up to speed on what the Bible teaches about heaven, then proceed through the rest of the book. I think you'll find it you'll find it delightful. It was an eye opener for me, Thomas. Yeah, Jennifer Leo did the study guide that accompanies heaven. She was working for Randy Alcorn and Zondervan actually, and Zondervan was doing the study guide, so you can do the study guide. I think it's in the, I think the study guide is in the back of the book, back of the copy of the book that I have, but you can buy it separate. Um, anything else? Oh, Ray had a question, and there was two more questions I wanted to get to. One was, what about cremation? Is it okay for uh, Christians to cremate or be cremated? And the other question was, um, what do we do about, because we talked about this before the election, what is our duty as Christians in the midst of the political climate in which we live, and how should we be dealing with these issues of, of Obama and what he's doing and, and voting as Christians, how should we vote? We talked about that way back before November in a Q&A. Let me update that now because we have a president that I'm sure probably most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, are severely disappointed in to say the least. My disappointment has nothing to do with spending or economics or anything like that, although those things do grate me uh, considerably. But the life issue to me is the most important fundamental issue that we deal with in this country, is the abortion argument. So what is our duty as Christians now that we have a president who has committed himself to using all of the resources and all of the funds and all of the power of the federal government to make sure that as many babies die as possible? What should be our response? I think our response is that, number one, we have to remember that we must respect those who are in authority. Romans 13, that was written to Christians who were living under Nero. Don't forget that. Nero was not a saint. He wasn't Constantine. This guy was more wicked than Obama ever thought he could be. And Paul said you need to acknowledge that every authority that exists, exists by the hand of God, by the decree of God. And to resist that authority is to resist the hand of God. So as Christians, so far, we have not been asked to do anything that is immoral. He's not forcing us to have abortions. He's not forcing us not to meet. He's not forcing us not to speak on certain things. So as Christians, we submit to that authority, and we submit to that authority as long as that authority does not ask us or demand of us to do something that would violate a tenet of Scripture. And so we live our faith. We trust in the sovereignty of God. We walk with God. We walk with each other. We do business as usual. We should be preaching the gospel. It's number one priority, believing that God is in control. And look, we believe that God stirs the heart of a king like he turns the rivers of water. It is not outside of the question. Just think Nebuchadnezzar. Obama could wake up tomorrow and say, and call a press conference and say, look, I've come to understand that I am a wretched, horrible, miserable sinner and that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And I'm turning my back on all of my sin and I'm, pl- I'm repenting and placing my faith in Him. And from this point forward, we will not do anything to make abortions happen. I am going to, I am going to govern as a biblical, obedient Christian. End of press conference. Back to the White House. To sign executive orders repealing all the horrible things I've done so far. Thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. And he could do that. That is not outside of the possibility. God could do that in His heart because He controls the heart. So whatever God is determined to allow to happen, He's allowing to happen for reasons, for our good, for His glory, and we rest in that. Okay, boy, did we ever? We had... well, that was a good one. I I think I was glad we're out of time. You... You and me both (laughs) sweating. (laughs) Okay, Don, did you have something real quick before we close? We are commanded to pray for them, right. And we should. And we should. Yep. Right. Anything that might hasten the coming of the Lord, I'm for. Whatever that means. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The answer on cremation is that there's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot cremate a Christian. A Christian cannot be cremated. There is a theological reason why Christians bury their dead rather than burn their dead. The theological reason is because even as far back as the book of Job, Christians and Israelites and the Jews believed that God was going to resurrect the body. They believed in a bodily resurrection. Even Job said, I know that after this body is decayed and eaten by worms, I will stand in my flesh and I will see God with my own eyes. He believed in a bodily resurrection. All the Old Testament saints believed in a bodily resurrection. Remember, Joseph said, take my bones out of Egypt, into the land of promise. Why? Joseph knew that God was going to raise his body. He didn't say, just, hey, throw my bones out, let them be eaten by scavengers. Joseph was hoping that the body would be raised from the dead. So, in the New Testament, you get this affirmation in a bodily resurrection, and Christians and Jews always buried their dead because it was, to them, a symbolic gesture that we believe the body will be raised again. We believe that the body is going to be sacred. It's going to be resurrected. It's going to dwell with God in a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to be redeemed. So they would bury the body because they didn't believe the body was evil. They believed that the temple was, the body was a temple and it was holy and it should be treated with reverence and respect and that nothing physical, uh, nothing about being physical was inherently evil. So they would bury the dead in expectation. They knew, they believed God was going to raise the body from the dead. That's why they buried the dead rather than burned the dead. The pagans burned the dead, burned the bodies because they believed that being liberated from this flesh is that's ultimate salvation if i could just be liberated from this bondage of this body so when the dead were buried or the dead when somebody passed on they would burn the dead because they hated they didn't have any respect or reverence for the body in their theology there was no resurrection but in our theology there is a resurrection so there's nothing in scripture that says you cannot cremate it's just as christians there is a theological reason why we bury the dead rather than burn the dead but if you burn the dead doesn't mean that God's not going to resurrect that body any more than the person who dies in a house fire or the person who gets eaten by sharks or whatever. God's still going to resurrect that body. Well, we are out of time. Carol, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, the, the what was before explosions, the, the belief in the, bottom, the burial, the practice of burial, right. And there's nothing about cremation that, for as Christians, is a testimony that we don't believe God is going to raise this body. We believe that. But what distinguished pagans from believers in God in the Old Testament was this practice of burying the dead. They did it because they believed the body was going to be resurrected. Excuse me, resurrected again. Ultimately, I would say there's no biblical reason why I can say you can't cremate anybody. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to choose to be buried myself. I'm hoping to do that. I understand people cremate because it's cheaper and, and more convenient and, and better for them, and I'm fine with that. I don't, and there's no biblical reason why you can't do that. Not at all. Okay, let's close in prayer before somebody else raises their hand. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the blessing of our time together. And Lord, may everything that is unbiblical or wrong that I have said or that I have taught today may be quickly forgotten, and may those things which are true and in keeping with your word be remembered long, and may they endure and change and touch our hearts. We thank you for this time, and even though we've talked about things that we know a little bit about and not fully, we do believe, God, that you are able to teach us the truth from your word, and we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.